Well, I saw a bumper sticker this past week that kind of made me half uh, laugh and almost cry. The bumper sticker had in big words, Jesus is coming, and uh, big enough that I could read that, but then I could see there was something written underneath, and so I had to almost tailgate to (laughs) to read the other part. And underneath, in little letters, it said, look busy. And uh, I don't know about you, but if, if you think about that, I tend to overanalyze things and uh, things like bumper stickers. And so it just kind of, the rest of the day, I was just thinking about this. Jesus is coming, look busy. Of course, it could be an absolute satirical comment that the owner is trying to produce. Or it could be that, that the person actually believes somehow that that's part of what it's all about. And of course, it's ludicrous to think that... Um, we could sort of cram for final exams. If Jesus is coming, we could just look busy and, you know, we'll dupe him into thinking that, hey, these, these, maybe, maybe I'll have him on my team. I'll take him to heaven kind of thing. Uh, there's all kinds of strange ideas out there about Jesus. And Jesus is coming and look busy. And, uh, you know, if there was anybody at all in the history of humanity that I know of that could have done it that way, If it were possible, it would have been the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was so incredibly busy for God. He was so zealous, sold out, willing to be the fool for God. He was was doing everything that he could understand in his Judaism and his roots to, to, to be that pleasing to God kind of person. And so he attended synagogue, he fasted, he prayed, he, he tithed, he studied the law, he, he did everything. He was even going out of his way to persecute and attack those who, in his mind, were false sects and religions. And yet, one day, as we talked about last week, on the road to Damascus, he met Christ. He met Jesus Christ, and he realized that all of his righteousness, all of his ways of trying to be pleasing to God, we're just, we're just of nothing, all in vain. And he came to say, for me to live is Christ. And uh, so today, as we continue to talk about Paul, we're doing this in preparation for the study of one of his letters, the book of Ephesians. In about a month, we're going to start into that and study it until the summer. But in preparation, we want to get to know this guy, Paul, who has been used by God to write so much of the New Testament. And today we're going to slowly look further into what is his view of conversion. And next week, probably we'll have to wait till next week we'll start to look at his view of sanctification, of how it is that someone who now is a Christian becomes more like Christ. And so I have a a graph that I'd like to use. And um, I'm going to step out of the way and see if we can see this. To begin to understand Paul's view of conversion, you have to start to understand the need for it. Uh, What was the need for conversion? And uh, Paul goes right back to the beginning of uh, of recorded scripture where he understands that we were all created in the image of God. That, uh, what does that mean? Created in the image of God. It means that aside from, different from all of the rest of created order, Humanity, both man and woman, have this unique inherent dignity and worth because of being in the image of God. It has a lot to do with the the capacities that we have as humans. 
in a different way than animals, for example. We have a, we're rational beings, we're volitional beings, we're emotional beings, we're relational beings. And in, in all those ways, rational, volitional, emotional, and relational, we have a capacity that we don't see in the animal kingdom. We're in the image of God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, for, for we are in the, to the image and the glory of God, the actual glory of God. So we somehow reflect his glory, his image. But see, that, that intimacy that we, got, we had with God at the beginning, that, that image of God that was, was inherent in us was broken. It was, it was tarnished. When our forefathers, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, an incredible thing happened. It's one of the most important understanding, things to understand in, the, in all of the redemptive history. And when our forefathers disobeyed, we rebelled against, and it rebelled against his authority. Immediately, as a race, as a people, we experienced what theologians call the effects of the fall. The fall. And all of a sudden, immediately, there was, there was no more of this intimacy with God and with one another. Instead, we began to hide from God, and we began to hide from one another. And so, so the fall, or sin, has this social consequence and this spiritual vertical consequence. And so there came this loss of innocence, there came disobedience that caused the curse of sin, and immediately spiritual death, which Adam and Eve knew nothing of, occurred. And immediately mortality occurred, which they knew nothing of either in the garden. And they were forced to leave the garden and uh, bear the consequences of sin. But even more than that, now if you remember that, that's great, and if you know that, but even more than that, what's important for you to know is this, that everything that happened to them happened to you. Everything that happened to them happened to us collectively. Therefore, so when we come into this world as mortals subject to death, we come into it spiritually dead under the curse of sin our primary nature is actually hardwired to be selfish, to disobey God. And we are estranged from Him because of that nature of sin in Adam. And, and we are estranged from, from one another. Now, you might think, well, that, that doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, Adam and Eve mess up, and i got to kind of bear the consequences of it. And, and it would be too long to go into it, but bottom line is, is that if you and I would have been there, we'd have done the same thing. And the, the issue is so critical for Paul. He builds his theology, theology of redemption upon the same understanding of his theology of corruption. And so it's critical that you know, and I know, that, that, that we were in the loins of Adam, our forefather. And that because he sinned, we inherited through his blood the very nature that is in rebellion against God. And so in our representative head... Adam, all that was good with God, in friendship with God, was, was corrupted. Similarly, Paul goes on to say in his letters that similarly in our redemptive head, in our representative head of Jesus, all that was corrupted is now redeemed. So, so that's why I believe in a literal Adam and Eve, not just because historically the Bible teaches it in the Old Testament, but because theologically in the New Testament, so much is, is put upon it. And so that's critical for Paul. Paul understands it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as an Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Now, you had no choice when you came into this world. You were in Adam. And you came into this world with this nature that was predisposed against God. Now, I know many people would say, oh, look at that little baby. You can't tell me that little baby's depraved. Yes, I can. Because the scriptures teach and because the bloodline teach, and it's because it's human to rebel and be opposed to God. So everything that happened to Adam happened to us. And similarly, everything that happens to Christ happens to us. And that's why I blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's incredible what God has done for us. And so this restoration is incredibly important to take place. So what does it mean? Well, it means that beginning with physical birth, when you are born, you come into this world and you're born physically in a state of estrangement from God. That Bible calls it depravity. You have the nature of Adam. You're inclined towards sin. The image of God that all of us created to be has been broken. Brokenness describes humanity. We're broken vessels. The image of God has been tarnished and corrupted by sin. And that sin shows itself in his intense natural inclination to be selfish. It looks one way in a two-year-old and another way in an 82-year-old. But it's the same nature that causes us this inclination. And so we, can be, we, can, we sin really because we're sinners. You know, it's not, it's not we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We have that nature. So David writing in the Old Testament in Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, um, I was sinful at birth. How is he to say that? And then he goes on to say, it was in sin that my mother conceived me. Well, was it sin for David's mother and father to have sex and to conceive him? No. He's saying that I was conceived in sin because that's the bloodline. That's the nature that's been passed on to me. That's who we are. And so then, what is it? What is our relationship to sin? We're dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we'll see it in a month or two when we study, as for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Verse 3, all of us lived like that. All of us were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its thoughts and desires. And then he adds this, we were by nature, he says, by nature, children of wrath. The NIV says object, but the word is children of wrath. So, so we were children of wrath. That's our relationship with God before we know Christ. In this condition, if we're allowed to go unchecked, unregenerate, unconverted, unsanctified, if somehow we don't see an escape to this, then our relationship to sin is that we're not able not to sin. That is it. I mean, you might argue with that. You might know people that are not believers that could argue with it, but you, you really are not able not to sin if you do not have Christ. The Bible says, and Paul unpacks it in Romans chapter 6, for example, and in Galatians 5, that we were slaves to sin. I almost wanted to get uh, Bob Dylan out here and say, serve somebody. I mean, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And so if we're left in that condition, we stand before God one day in judgment. But there's got to be an intervention there's got to be an intervention outside of humanity if we are going to experience the good news. If we're going to be saved, if we're going to be forgiven, if we're going to have eternal life. There's got to be an outside intervention. 
because I'm dead in sin. Dead men don't respond to anything usually. And so God comes in, in redemption. Now I want to say that when the Bible talks about hell, the Bible talks about hell in a way that says that it was not prepared for humans. It might surprise you, but hell was not prepared for humans. It says very clearly, Jesus teaches in Matthew 25, that hell was a place that is going to be prepared for the devil and all of his angels. But you see, the problem is, is that there is no religious neutrality. I read a book a long time ago. It's called The Myth of Religious Neutrality. Jesus taught it, of course, in a more simple way. He said, you are either for me or you are against me. And so in, in, that, in that understanding, you see, we come into this world, we got this nature, something has to be redeemed or else we are on our way, where? To wherever Satan is going, because that's the side we're on until we know Christ. And that's the bad news. I had to unpack the bad news because, you see, there is no good news if we don't understand the bad news. There is no good news. When you heard testimonies this morning talking about salvation and what God was doing, this is what they experienced. If you, if you unpack this thing theologically, that's what every one of them experienced. Now, if you go back to Ephesians 2, we, we turn, the, turn the page then at verse 4, and Paul quickly gets out of the bad news and he gets into the good news. And he says in verse 4, but because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The intervention comes in the form of God's grace in sending his son Christ to die in the place of sinners, raised to new life. Romans 5, Paul unpacks it further. He, he says three words that describe the person before knowing Christ. He says, you were powerless, you were sinners, and you were enemies of God. That was our condition until God intervened by sending his son Jesus. So what did he do? Well, there's a few words that are used, and one of them is the word justification. Uh, what happened to all three of the ones that we heard this morning was that at one point, God justified them. What does it mean? It's a, it's a word, a legal word that means to declare righteous, to declare them righteous. They're not righteous yet experientially, but they're declared righteous. It's an incredible word. Paul loves it. He goes into it at various times. And of course, this justification by faith became the touchstone of the Protestant Reformation under Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk in, uh, in Germany, and he was... He hated God. He writes that. M Martin Luther, as a, as a priest, hated God. Why did he hate God? He hated God because he thought that it was absolutely impossible to live up to the kind of expectations that God had. For, for God demanding so much from us and the impossibility of living he says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him, he says. And so, so he began to study scripture, and in the process, he, he came upon this idea that just shall live by faith, the righteous will live by faith. He didn't understand it, though, and so he still continued to look for different ways of pleasing God, fastings, prayers, charity, good works. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome crossed the Alps, 
um, and he went to, to uh, Rome, and he, he landed in there at Rome, went to the Church of St. John, and the Pope had said that anybody that would do this certain thing would, would buy an indulgence, which was kind of your credit toward your future heavenly glory, the understanding was. And so he did this. He went to the Church of St. John, and he found a place called Pilate's Judgment Hall. And it was taught that that was where, where Jesus appeared before Pilate in, in being cross-examined. And, and the, the, the indulgence required people to get down on their knees and to climb these stairs and to climb all the way up and, and all the way down with all these different prayers of absolution all the way. They even put glass on there was glass on the stairs, and there was some superstitious idea that it was glass that was broken back in the time when Jesus was there. So they went up and down, and they kissed the stairs. They prayed their prayers, and it was in the middle of this stairway that Martin Luther came to see. It just dawned on him, the just shall live by faith. There was another way to being right with God than my way of trying to attain it. It was by faith in what God did in His Son, Jesus Christ. He returned to Wittenberg, and this became, this became the, the key verse of the, of the Reformation. He said right later on, he wrote this. He wrote, Before these words broke upon my mind, I hated God. I was angry with them because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, He still further increased our torture with this gospel but when by the Spirit of God I understood the words that the just or the righteous shall live by faith, I felt born again like a new man, and I entered into the doors that day into the very paradise of God. It was transformational for Martin Luther. You see, he understood something. Inherent in this understanding of justification by faith is this idea of substitution. He understood that if it was by faith in what Christ did, then in some capacity, all of Martin Luther's sin was imputed to Christ's account, and all of the righteous, pure holiness of Christ was imputed to Martin Luther's account. And by faith, all of a sudden, in accepting that free gift of grace, the sinner that we are, the sinners that we are, can be made righteous. We can stand holy before God. That's the gospel. You can't do it. There was only one who ever lived the Christian life. It was Jesus. Either he lives it in you and through you and as you, or you don't live it. So that, that revolutionized and changed Martin Luther's life. You might have heard the definition of justification, just as if I'd never sinned. And you see, that's kind of a half-truth. And a half-truth taken like a whole truth is an untruth, isn't it? Because if, if you just think of that definition just as if I'd never sinned, where does that get us? It gets us back to the garden. It gets us back to so-called innocence. But we still have this nature that we're born with to contend with. We still have this nature that is inclined to self and not to God. So in one second, you might be declared righteous just as if it never sinned, but in the very next second, you're going to be condemned because that nature's driving. You're a slave to sin until you get a new nature. And see, that's the other part that that definition doesn't deal with is that justification not only includes 
just as if you never sinned, but it gives you the positive righteousness, holiness of Christ. You receive a new nature. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4 that we've been made partakers of a divine nature. Paul says, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. That's revolutionary. That's radical. That's worth dying and living for. Everything has been removed. God has given me, accepted me freely in his son. And so Paul Martin Luther was very misquoted often afterwards when he said, Sin boldly! <laughs> well, I'm a little off track here. So we're made spiritually alive when this transaction takes place. And I'm given, I'm given a new nature in Jesus Christ I'm no longer, my relationship begins to be sanctified. My experience begins to be sanctified. And when you come to know Christ, you're still this infant baby Christian. Christ is needing to be formed in you. There's still all kinds of being made holy stuff to happen in your experience. Even though you're positionally declared righteous and holy in His sight, there's so much to take place. And so you begin this journey it's that whole green section that we're going to talk about next week, that whole sanctification issue. Because you see, in the old life that you'd had before Christ, you were not able not to sin. But now, you are able to sin, and you're able not to sin. You know what, if some of you might be here this morning, and you're saying, that doesn't describe my Christian experience. You're believing a lie, if you think that. You are able not to sin. Now, I'm not suggesting we ever arrive at perfection. I'm not suggesting that we can go much time without sinning. But I am saying that in the, in the Spirit of God that indwells you, God can give you, by faith in Him, give you extra power and presence in your life to actually resist that temptation, forgive that person, do whatever is loving. It's all the things that God has called because Christ's life is in you. But it's by faith in Him. It's not your self-effort. You are not a self-improvement project. Your relationship changes with God from being a child of wrath, fearing judgment, not sure. He's always kind of looking down at you. You know, Jesus is coming, look busy. That's all gone. What are you now? You're an adopted child. And you've come under this free, unconditional love of God. God could not love you more than he does right now. Can you believe that? You could go out and sin, and you could go blow it. You could, you could mess up your life in so many ways, and he could not love you less or more than he loves you right now. Because when he looks at you, he sees you robed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's good news. Until you die. And then you enter into this whole new process of an encounter with God. I want to, uh, I want to finish the diagram quickly and and I'm going to ask the ushers to hand out this diagram to anybody that wants it as you leave. And we're going to come back to it this week, next week. But I want to just describe that in this green space, we'll talk about it next week, we're in that already but not yet stage of life, you see. And, and one day when you die, you will experience another big theological word that Paul loves, and that's glorification. And that is when you are all of a sudden instantaneously brought into the very presence of God, whether it's at your death or whether it's at the second coming of Jesus, you are instantly made, made perfectly, experientially, holy, pure, absolutely spotless. 
And so in that state, you are in God's presence. You are a co-heir with Christ. You'll reign with him forever. And your relationship to sin, you're not able to sin. In fact, you don't even know what sin is. You're not even in the very presence of sin. It's like, so whenever somebody asks me, what is heaven like? I don't even like trying to answer that question because, see, I'm going to try and answer that. I'm a sinner, and I live in a sinful world, and I've got sin affecting me, and I'm trying to answer what a world without sin looks like. You know? What does it look like? Well, finally, I want to just share with this with you. There's, there's three ways that Paul uses the word salvation in Scripture, past, present, and future. Justification is the word that he uses for when he talks about, you were saved when you came to know Christ. And it's freedom from the penalty of sin. In other words, you were declared righteous, and because of that, judge God himself, the holy judge, declaring you righteous based on what his son did in paying your debt, you are now not going to experience the penalty of sin. Incredible. Sanctification is freedom from the power of sin. It's present salvation. I am being saved. Paul talks about that way. You who are being saved. And, and that's a process. It begins when you are born again as a Christian. It will go until the day you die. God will continue to work on you, knocking off of you everything that doesn't look like Christ. That's the already not yet stage of life. And then glorification is the freedom from the very presence of sin. One day I will be saved fully and I will be free from the very presence of sin. I know we've gone over a little bit, but I wanted to finish that and I would encourage you to Pick up a, a copy of it as you leave. You might want to look at it at home, pray about it. Say, hey, where am I on this journey? Maybe you want to take it to your life group and talk about it or your family. Um, would you stand with me and we're going to conclude with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord our God, I'm so grateful for, we're so grateful for having heard the testimonies this morning of your miracle working grace to snatch children and, and bring them to you at a young age. God, we're grateful for others in this room that were snatched at an older age and brought to you because of your mercy and grace, awakening them to you, restoring the relationship, the image of God now slowly being restored as you work on us, as you come in, Holy Spirit, and, and clean house. And Father, we give you liberty this day Lord, everyone who knows you, we give you liberty in Jesus' name to continue the cleaning, sanctifying, making holy work that you're doing. And Father, wherever there's conviction of sin this morning because of the preaching of the word, please accompany it with the gospel, with the good news of this incredible God, Jesus, who, who has given his life so that sinners could be, could be free of shame, free of guilt, and live a new life. Lord, bless each one here, and thank you for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, go in peace. We'll bless you.